everyone, welcome to another daily objective. And tonight's objective is to understand what makes project and what makes progress possible. Because specifically my generation and our generation have considered progress as something self-evident, as something that just happens out there. So quite often I think that my students were born and the internet and the smartphones were just there. But actually, progress has been not the rule, but the exception throughout the history of humanity. And tonight we have with us someone who has, in a way, made it his intellectual mission to understand progress and to understand what makes it possible. So today we have Johann Norberg with us, an author and a historian of ideas. And his latest book is, I have it in Kindle version, Open. And it's a book that the, opened the story of human progress. And I think the title is self-explanatory and tries to see what is the key that makes progress possible. And I've read this book and it's a very interesting in a way dialogue with other people who have studied the same topic, people like Jeremy McCluskey or Matt Ridley. So it's a very, very important book. And it also has references to the events of the last months, references to COVID, for example. So it's very, very up to date and I encourage people to have a look at it. But also with us today is investor, but also thinker, Jonathan Honig, who will be my co-host. So many thanks to our guest and our co-host. So, so you mentioned in the book that it's not so much things like technology or ideas or the accumulation of capital. So not the usual explanations that we have for what makes progress possible. It's openness. And you say openness in terms of what's happening inside here in our minds, but also open trade, open societies, open immigration. Do you want to explain us a bit what you mean by openness and why you consider it such an important aspect of progress? Yeah, because I think that so many economic historians have contributed important material to understanding the world's progress, but they've often focused on particular innovations or sources of energy and so on. I think that that starts somewhere. <laughs> it starts with particular institutions that make it possible, institutions that open up for human creativity and rationality and exchange, and that in turn is dependent on particular ideas, particular attitudes to which kinds of institutions are good and bad, moral and immoral. And um, that's why when I look at human history, we have particular instances here and there of human flourishing, of, um, of efflorescences when we had rapid uh, increase in innovation, scientific knowledge, and of, uh, of productivity economically. But they often peter out because there's always this internal debate within those societies. Should they welcome these creations, even if they threaten incumbents, could be intellectual, religious incumbents, could be commercial or political incumbents, or should we close it down to protect what we already had? And whenever that openness has been destroyed, it has undermined those civilizations as well. And that's why I think it's a, it's, it's a history book, but it's really relevant to our times. So, Jonathan, you are someone who is who you live in, let's say, the economy, and it's it's your 
it's a thing you're you're a specialist in. So how important do you think openness is, and how do you how do you understand the term? So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, because well, I'm 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 just angry that that Johan is here because we all know that he is he's a globalist, right? I mean that's <laughs> we talk about openness, Johan. I know part of what you write about in the book, which I recommend. I read excerpts is the importance of global trade as promoting progress. But these days, you know, you as someone who supports global tra uh, global trade and openness and trade, you're I don't know if you're worse than a pedophile, but you're kind of on that level, right? I mean, you're you're destroying jobs, you're, you're ruining the environment, uh, you're you're hurting people's lives. How how do you respond to that charge? Very common, even among those who say they support capitalism, that Johan, you're just a globalist. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've heard throughout history as well in this debate. And you're really sort of rephrasing it in the kind of way that we heard in, in Ming China as well in the 16th century or in the uh, Abbasid Caliphate in the uh, 1000 years ago, because some people always said that, no, don't be global because it's kind of a way of selling out to the others, to, to strange people, other groups, other tribes, we should stick to our own. But the thing is, when you read the records of, of world history and economics today, is that any kind of trade and exchange is about benefiting us. Being global, being open, is not some sort of generosity. It's not altruism. It's a way of making sure that we can benefit from the brains and the skills and the hard work, the goods and services technologies of other people as well, and not just stick to what we can come up with here. And every time then that people have said sort of, you know, the, the Abbasid Caliphate first or the uh, Ming China first. It has just meant that they've shut themselves off. They cut themselves off from all those sources of energy, of talent and innovation that took place in other places. And they ruined it for themselves. So one of the most contro quote, controversial, but for many people will be, even for liberals, controversial part of your book is where do you say that immigration is actually even more important in a way than free trade. And you provide some statistics that says that if by free trade, let's say we get X amount of more GDP, with free immigration, we'd get eight times this. So I will try to, to give you the best argument of the other side. And actually, this is something that I had a discussion with someone who identifies as a nationalist, and he asked me, Nikos, you love Athens. By what percentage of people in Athens who are going to be immigrants, Athens is not anymore going to be Athens? Is it 20%, 30%, 50%? And when he was getting at, is there up to a point where immigration uh, so much influences the identity, or however you want to call it, of a place that it's not anymore, quote, our place? Yeah. You could make that theoretical case, and you can make, those uh, theoretical experiments, obviously. But it's all dependent on the idea that the immigrants come up with some sort of culture and an attitude that is contrary to what you already had in Athens, for example. And I, it wouldn't be difficult to f come up with those kinds of examples. But when you look at it empirically, when you have open borders, and by that I mean open borders to people who want to make a life and a living for themselves and for their loved ones. Um, they do not come there to live off the expense of others through a generous welfare state. Um, and obviously criminals and, and others are 
stopped at the, at the borders. In that case, what we see is that there's a bias. Those who leave their own place are not, uh, in most instances, those who are most traditionalist, authoritarian, uh, tribalist, uh, sectarian in various ways. Think about it yourself. If something terrible happened to Athens or wherever you happen to be, who would be the first ones? Who would sort of pick up the uh, sticks and move to somewhere else to and, and depend on their own ingenuity, their talent, and being open to associating with people who speak a language that you don't? Well, it's probably those who are the most innovative, entrepreneurial, and open to what you have in, in Athens or in other places. And ambitious. I mean, Harry Binslinger, I know, uh, Nikos, you might know, has done some wonderful work on this, is that, you know, immigration attracts those ambitious, poor, and all I know is just so many of my investors, who are all very wealthy, are either immigrants or the children of immigrants who came here, in many cases, not learning the language. Now they own real estate in, in, in millions. But, but, but uh, Johan, I want to ask, you know, why is it now, I feel it even, that the tribalism is thundering? You know, there's always that kind of, you know, America first thing. But people also said, hey, it's pretty cool to buy things on Amazon from China or where else. It's pretty cool to have an Ethiopian restaurant open in my block. And, you know, it is a, it's cool to be part of the, why has the pendulum now seemed to be swung so far towards this really, I consider, abhorrent uh, tribalism? Yeah, yeah, it's very worrying, and I'm trying to explain it in the book. And what I think is that there is a somewhat disconnect between a modern, open, complex world dependent on thousands of exchanges just to produce this computer or, or this glass of water. Um, it's a disconnect between that wonderful result of our ingenuity and our Stone Age brains trying to comprehend it. And, you know, I'm in favor of Stone Age brains. I'm pro Stone Age brains because they got us this far. They had to have something wonderful uh, in them. Uh, but they did have a problem. They had, a, they were, the evolution took place in an, a situation where quite often the others were not someone who, when they became more powerful or rich or wealthy or uh, or learned, or it didn't benefit you. It meant that they could kill you more easily. It meant they were raiding tribe. So we have this almost instinctual habit of when we see strange things happening, we're worried about the world. We look to the strong man to protect us. We have this societal fight or flight instinct where we want to just kill the others and you know that's fine if the others are an invading tribe but if the others are someone who can come up with important scientific knowledge a vaccine against a terrible disease or a better computer for you it means that you hurt yourself when you do that but i think we have we always have that disconnect and especially in the times of of trouble or at least seeming trouble, a crisis. That's what we see historically, at least. Uh, societies face natural disasters, great depressions, pandemics, and so on. We activate, we trigger that fight or flight instinct. And I think we might be there now with, you know, after the financial crisis, 
global terrorism, geopolitical concerns, and then Twitter sort of broadcasting this all over constantly. We're afraid, and then we want to kill someone and get protection by the big government. And I'll also just say, I think our intellectuals unfortunately feed it. They feed the zero-sum mentality that, hey, if China's getting rich, it's at your expense. If this guy's got it, it's because he's fucking, he's screwing you. I'm sorry, I've been reprimanded on this program already. Uh, so we're fighting it on the, would you say, on the intellectual level as well? That's exactly it. And that's the major problem. We find it so incredibly hard to understand that the world is not a zero-sum game. The myth of the zero-sum game is really the myth that launched a thousand uh, mistakes about the economy, about technology, about globalization and free trade and migration. Because then you always think that if someone gets rich, he took it from you. And then you always need to fight. You always need protection by someone. If people understood a little bit about economics, that would go such a long way to save the civilization, I think. Here's a question, though, Johan, and to John as well. So the big question is what comes first, ideas, technology, politics? So I really found interesting your idea in the book of the cracks. So there's this crack, there's this, let's say, gap where the, the hand of the state cannot reach you, then something develops there, and then it becomes so big that it's difficult for it to be suppressed. And the thing that came to mind was obviously Uber, because that was, in a way, the story. But at the end of the day, if ideas don't follow technology, then technology is not going to save us. So remember the optimism of the libertarians six, seven years ago or about Bitcoin or about, uh, about blockchain. So... And so what does define whether a society will have openness, if not ideas? So the thing I didn't understand 100%. So do you consider the mover of history, let's say, philosophy and ideas or something else that comes with them? That's an excellent question. I'd be very interested in hearing Jonathan's take on this as well. But my personal one is that I think it's an interaction where they feed each other uh, because I think the cracks they have been incredibly important historically and as the one of my favorite thinkers Leonard Cohen puts it there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in that's how the uber gets in that's how the internet got in that's how vaccination that's how the printing press basically secular science all of it had we had a majority vote on should we have this or shouldn't we, these disturbers of the peace, these innovations and, and so on, or just let the establishment decide, it would have been banned every single time. But often they slip through the cracks. And if they did for a sufficiently long time, or if they built the constituency like Uber, then they got to prove that they were essential to our well-being. And then people's minds changed and there was a... A, an effect where it became more important and influential in society. Sometimes that began to change the mentality and the atmosphere and the culture of the, the, the sense of life of a culture, if you will. And in, then intellectuals and others began to look upon the world anew and see that look, there are points, that there are great things about this innovation, individualism and so on. So let's defend, defend this and then it became longer lasting. But it wasn't enough if, that, if ideas weren't changed 
to a sufficient uh, um, extent. Because then what happened is that you have this cultural establishment at, um, you know, the writers, the, the, the religious thinkers, the priests, the universities, who are basically in opposition to the productive forces of society. And that's a kind of a civil war that one party has to lose eventually. Well, I mean, if you look at the, the innovators of today, uh, among them the tech giants, both political parties are at least seem to line against them. Uh, you know, there's antagonism. antagonism. You know, I, I um, you know, quickly, and I don't want to monopolize, but, you know, is it, is it the culture uh, it spurs the innovation, the innovation that spurs the culture? I mean, Nikos, um, I'm just thankful at the end of the day. I'm selfish. I'm thankful that I'm living during this period, which Unfortunately, I think it's on the decline and not during the dark ages. And, you know, the advancements we have at our fingertips and you know, and that's why I recommend your book and you as an intellectual to follow on social media is that I think you and your knowledge of history are one of the few intellectuals who are kind of, you know, I read a story this morning about how many young people, for example, aren't even aware of the Holocaust, let alone aware of how damn fortunate we are to live at this time of history with all the technical innovation brought to us by the reasoning West, the thinking mind. So, Thank you for taking the time in your books and your work to kind of bring us back to realize just how lucky we have it, thanks to our imperfect, but you know, semi-open, you'd say, society and, and morality and, and how important it is to, to keep and build on that from where we are. So thanks. That means a lot to me. And it's important because you cannot take progress for granted. That's the whole point of, of writing about human progress. If it were automatic, we could just sort of relax and do something else. Uh, but it's not. And if we continue to have a, a cultural attitude, an atmosphere of ideas that fight against the thing that keeps us alive and well, something's you know, got to give. You're Uber busted through, but at least now where I live, Uber is hamstrung by city tax and city regulation and this regulation and that regulation. So it, it hasn't really busted through as a, an example of the free marketplace of work yet. Yeah, so they, one, they fixed the cracks, unfortunately. One last question that I want to ask both of you and uh, has to do with where we are now and how we get out of this, in a way, dark place with COVID and in the stage with the tribalism and all that stuff. By the way, Johan's book is also part of it, although it's not its main focus. Show us the cover, if you would, sir. Show oh. Let's see it. Let's, yeah, and so... That's this the is the Swedish edition. But this captures the tribalist, the critique of tribalism, which is another level that this book is very, very good. And the objectivist audience will particularly appreciate how you, in a way, you present tribalism as the antithesis of self-esteem and as two forces that strive with each other. But you said something very interesting about COVID and about pandemics in general, that the number one effect of pandemics is the fear of associating with each other. And I still see this in the world out there. And now we're in a stage of this pandemic that we are again on the, on the reaction side. So more regulations. So when do you think that we will get out? What will it take for societies to burst through this? Is it going to be the vaccine or is the psychological impact of all this so big or the government's power are 
so big that it's not only gonna take the physical victory over the over the virus for us to go through it. Question open to both of you. Yeah, we'll 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 we'll, we'll see about that. First, let me just sort of reinforce what you mentioned. Um, because the, the World Bank calculated before this pandemic in 2014 that uh, up to 90% of the economic damage of pandemics and epidemics generally does not come from death, disease, treatment, and the associate loss of production when people stay home. 90% of it comes instead from this fear of associating with other people, which means that we don't go to work because we're afraid of getting sick there. We don't go to stores, harbors, airports are closed down. Basically, the, the, the anti-globalists, they, they win out. So it's a, it's a combination of, it's a, it's a utopia of sort of, you know, Greta Thunberg combined with Donald Trump. No one is flying, no one is moving, no one's migrating, no trade. And look, it was a trailer for that kind of an anti-globalist world. And do you really want to see the full motion picture after that? Because this was pretty awful. We, we shut down the world for three months and the result is already a global depression, increased poverty and hunger around the world. So that should tell us why we shouldn't take it for granted, the things that are being created by, by a global economy. So how do we get out of it? Well, my guess is that we'll get probably get out of it in just the same kind of irrational way that we got into it, because we didn't shut down cities, businesses, uh, countries, because we had an objective assessment of the risk, the transmission, uh, the state of the healthcare system in a particular place. There are several researchers who've looked into this. There's no connection, basically. The only connection that you can see is that when your neighbors start to shut down, when the neighboring country does it, you do it as well. So it's just a herd mentality, basically. And uh, many, many governments just abandon all their plans that they had for a pandemic, which were more similar to the Swedish strategy, sort of protect those who are most vulnerable, try to keep society open. But the moment everybody else started to shut down, you don't want to be the only one staying open, right? <laughs> because you might be right, and that's good, but you might be wrong. And it's so much worse to be the one person, <laughs> the one country who did the major the mistake it's much better to be mistaken along with everybody else. I think that's the general assumption. And I think that's how it's gonna end as well. I think a vaccine is definitely gonna help. But the one thing that's really gonna help is a couple of states are gonna open up and it's gonna work. A couple of countries are gonna do it and kids are going back to school and you'll see that it was overblown, the fear, and then everybody else will just follow along because the climate of opinion will change in a very Sounds radical good. way, no. Yeah, well. <laughs> Let's hope. Jonathan. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly just kind of bring myself back to uh, really the depths of the shutdowns in, in the spring of this year. And, you know, it's it's hyperbolic, I think, in the way that people bring up the Holocaust as the worst of example. I'm not going to say that seeing the global supply chain was like seeing the World Trade Tower destroyed because it's not the same, but it was so... Um, it's it's painful when you see things aren't available, when you see barren shelves, when you see uh, people out of work, when you see uh, businesses shift that used, are normally running full of goods. Um, and it kind of gets back to you know the, this objective, 
objectivist notion of political power versus economic power. And, um, you know, and how Rand talked about you should celebrate those smokestacks, those dirty smokestacks. And uh, so just seeing that supply chain and seeing the anti-trade voices out there, it's, it's like personally painful in a very hard to describe way because I consider that, you know, as someone who invests to see the global supply chain, it's amazing and how all these risks are moved and transferred. You know, you can buy commodities linked to the cost of shipping. You can hedge yourself in these fantastic ways. And, and that's what makes that jar of available on your shelf day in, day out. And uh, to understand the kind of the global nature of thinking on it's what you, you do such a great job of doing. So thanks for that work. Uh, and let's hope that, you know, big picture, we can keep moving towards a more open society as you talk about. I think that's a great point. And I do agree in both ways. It's not like seeing sort of the, the Twin Towers collapse on an emotion level. But if you have this sense of understanding of what it means, functioning supply chains in terms of creating and sustaining life. And if you have that kind of abstract reasoning in it, then you almost get this, become sick in the same way physically it's when like you see and, no one's buying them. millions of beneficial win-win relationships that you can't even compute how many millions of people are affected when you see that type of destruction. It can't help but hurt. That's right. And in the long run, many more people will lose their lives than lost their lives on 9-11 on when we shut down the world like that. So as an outro, let me say that uh, while I was reading this, the book, I found even myself, who I consider myself immune, let's say, from these bad ideas, thinking about my last months, because I work in jobs that I can work from abroad, my first reaction was fly to Greece. And then my plan was, well, unless the university opens, I'll stay here forever. Like I have my group here, my network here. So this part, the, it, there's it. There's nothing bad on that level, but when this becomes your worldview, then it's a problem. And something that this book makes me think is how easy it is for this to become your worldview. So I would encourage our audience to check this book out and struggle in a way with the ideas in the book, because it's not that it's these people out there who are the bad people and we are the good people and there's a clear line. The line quite often, and I think you mentioned in the book, is here. In, the, in our head. So the book we discussed is Johan Norberg's Open, the Story of Human Progress. You can find the link also on the comments on our Facebook lab, live. So Johan and Jonathan, thank you so much. And hopefully next time we talk, it's about something super exciting and something that's gonna make our lives so much better. I mean, the book will make our lives so much better, but I mean, <laughs> on the front of the pandemic or something like that. So many thanks. Many thanks to our audience. See you soon. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nikos.